Due to the graphic nature of this case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Ragnar, Ragnar, wake up! Huh? Huh? What's happening? Look at the wall. That light coming through the window, what is it? Anna, it's probably just the moon, reflecting on the snow. Moonlight doesn't flash, Ragnar. I think it's a car. At three in the morning? Hey, you! What the hell's the matter with you, flashing those lights? Ragnar, it's me. Fred Trippin. Fred? What are you doing here? Look, the Johnson farm is on fire. Oh no, Elvira and Albin, they're children. I've got to get over there. Ragnar, don't you dare go inside that house. I have to help. Be careful. This is Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Unsolved Murders for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Unsolved Murders in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. This is our first episode on the 1933 Johnson family murders in Harris, Minnesota. This week, we'll meet Albin and Alvira Johnson and learn the details of the difficult life they led. Next week, we'll cover the aftermath of the fire that claimed the Johnson family's lives and the manhunt for the family member who may have been responsible. Fifty miles north of the bustling twin cities of Minneapolis and St. Paul lies Chisago County, Minnesota. In the 1800s, it was a tough but beautiful place for farmers, loggers, and fishermen to make a living. A place full of lush forests and scenic bodies of water, including the St. Croix River, which divides Minnesota and Wisconsin. Chisago County residents were also subject to long, cold winters that extended into April. Many of them were perfectly fine with the cold. After all, a significant portion of the area's population had moved there from Sweden. Sweden's population nearly doubled between 1750 and 1850, which left few opportunities for Swedes to succeed, especially if they were farmers who needed access to land. By the 1850s, Minnesota had become a popular destination for Swedish immigrants looking for a new life in America. One of those immigrants was 20-year-old Emil Johnson. Emil made the move from his home of Elia Hult, Sweden, in 1882. He settled in the farming town of Harris, located in Chisago County. He used his savings to buy a plot of farmland, and his choice of location put him close to the woman he would marry. The farm next door belonged to the parents of Cecilia Blomberry, a young woman who was three years older than Emil. By 1888, 26-year-old Emil had fallen hard for the girl next door. You know, Cecilia, it really is a shame about this fence between our farms. It keeps out some unsavory characters. 
unsavory characters? <laughs> you, Amal. I was talking about you. Hmm. You didn't seem to have a problem with my character the other night. <laughs> You've caught me there. So, about the fence. What if we tear it down? Merge our lands? Amal, what do you mean? I'm saying... Cecilia Bloomberry, will you marry me? <gasps> yes! Yes, I will! Emil and Cecilia were both actively involved in Harris's Lutheran Church. Emil was a founding member of the congregation and even helped in the chapel's construction. By most accounts, Emil and Cecilia were hardworking and well-respected in their small farming town. However, there were a few exceptions to that regard. While he placed great importance on faith and righteousness, Emil was also known to be rigid and difficult. He had tough standards and wasn't afraid to call out those who didn't meet them, especially if they were his own children. The Johnsons had seven children in total. Four boys, Ted, Albin, Yelmer, and Henry, and three girls, Elsa, Olga, and Esther. As they reached adulthood, the four Johnson boys, Ted, Albin, Yelmer, and Hank, became known for two things, drinking and fighting. They allegedly brewed illegal moonshine and were at the center of many a barroom brawl. Albin Johnson was a quiet, blue-eyed child who was raised with a strong sense of religion. He attended school while growing up, but records indicate he dropped out after sixth grade. After that, he began working on the family farm to help his father. Life was tough, and it made the Johnson children tough, too. Albin's younger brother, known as Big Hank Johnson, was particularly violent. He even attacked a friend named Vic Romberry and choked him until he turned purple. Four men had to pull Big Hank off of Romberry before he quit. Oddly, Big Hank was also remembered as being friendly and loyal in his later years. His one-time enemy, Vic Romberry, was one of the pallbearers at his funeral. In contrast to Big Hank, Albin was quiet, and the sense of danger about him was more restrained and tightly coiled. Albin was six foot three and weighed 240 pounds. His reserved but intense demeanor made him appear threatening. You could never quite tell what Albin was thinking. The Johnson brothers' wildest drinking years happened during Prohibition, a national ban on alcohol that lasted from 1920 to 1933. In order to get their fix, the burly Johnson boys would walk five miles to their favorite speakeasy between Harris and Rush City. Oh, good lord. Something wrong? I love a paying customer as much as the next man, but these are the Johnson brothers. By the time they get done here, I'll be clean out of liquor. Is that bad? They walk for miles in the cold just to come here and get drunk. They're going to find them frozen in a ditch someday. Mark my words. By 1920, 30-year-old Albin had returned to Minnesota to live on his parents' farm and work as a laborer. It was a tough and draining life in a town of hard-working farmers, and there wasn't much fun to be had except for drinking with his brothers. Sometimes the brothers' excursions took them to seedy speakeasies, but on occasion their fun was more wholesome. If a person wanted good, clean fun in Chisago County, the local schoolhouse was the place to be. People of all ages, from toddlers to the elderly, would gather at night to sing and dance to Swedish folk songs. Albin Johnson and his brothers would often attend these events, usually supplying the alcohol. It was likely at one of these dances that a 32-year-old Albin 
met 19-year-old Elvira Lundin. Elvira, have you tried the punch? Oh, Alvin, hello. Yes, my glass is somewhere over by the piano. Here, try mine. I can run over and get mine. There's no need to. I insist. You'll like this one better. <laughs> Alvin Johnson, what's in this punch? It's disgusting. You want another sip? Perhaps, just a tiny one. Yes. The two quickly grew close. It was the beginning of a love story that would change Alvin's fate and end Elvira's life. When we return, we'll hear more about Alban and Elvira's troubled courtship and the rocky marriage that resulted from it. Now, back to the story. 32-year-old Alban Johnson was born and raised in Harris, Minnesota, the son of two Swedish immigrants who ran a local farm. While his father, Emil, was strict and religious, Alban lived a life that was a bit more colorful. Alban spent time in Canada as a logger around 1917 and was known for being a drunken troublemaker with his brothers Ted, Yelmer, and Hank. Alban's lifestyle wasn't promising, but that changed when he met 19-year-old Alvira Lundin. Alvira was a Harris native, just like Alban. She was born on November 15, 1903. Her parents, Fred and Christine, were Swedish farmers devoted to their Christian faith, just like Alban's family. Alvira was 14 years younger than Alban, so it's unlikely they crossed paths when they were younger. But in 1922, as Alban entered his 30s and Alvira inched toward her 20s, fate and luck brought them together. Alban grew to love the quiet girl with blonde curls, and Alvira felt the same way about him. Her family, however, did not. Alvira, I don't understand. What do you see in Alban? Mother, is this about the age difference again? Well, he is 14 years older than you, but I suppose that isn't the problem. Then what is it? I've never seen the man smile or say a kind word to anyone ever. He smiles for me. He's also a drunk in those brothers of his. I know how they get. I've heard the stories. Mother, he was a bachelor. I'm not saying it's right. I've told him to drink less, but... It will be different once we're wed. How can you know that, Elvira? Look at his father. Why, Mr. Johnson is just about the most upstanding Christian anyone's ever seen. And I know Albin will be like that, too. One day. That day better come soon. I don't want you making a mistake that will change your life forever. If Albin's a mistake, then he's mine to make. <sighs> then you have my blessing, dear. Just be careful. Despite the objections of her mother, Elvira and Albin married on December 16, 1922. Their first son, Harold, was born in 1923. While the Johnsons experienced the joy of growing their family, heartache also touched their lives. Albin's mother, Cecilia, died on March 20, 1924, after an illness that lasted several weeks. It was a tough year, but it's likely Albin and Elvira didn't have much time to mourn. Their family was expanding rapidly. Over the next decade, they had six more children. Clifford was born in 1924, and Kenneth followed in 1927. Then Dorothy in 1928, and Bernice in 1929. 
Another boy named Lester was born in 1931, and the youngest, James, was born in 1933. Albin eked out an existence as a farmer and laborer, and money was tight. The Johnsons took assistance from the Red Cross and tried to skimp where they could. Sometimes they couldn't afford Christmas presents for their children. Despite their dire finances, the children lived a normal life. They attended the Chippewa Hill School, about a mile away from their farm. They walked there every day, no matter what the weather, and were kept busy at home helping out with the farm tasks. The children's mother, Alvira, had her hands full. She was raising seven kids, including a baby, all while cooking, cleaning, and helping out with the farm. It was not an easy life, but Alvira was tireless and hardworking. Alvira, are you all right? Hello, Anna. I'm fine. But you're crying in the outhouse. I know. It's just been a morning. Harold won't stop tracking mud in the house, and Dorothy's decided she'll only eat if Bernice eats, and of course, Bernice refuses to eat. I don't know how you manage, dear. <laughs> oh, I cry in the outhouse, that's how. I wish we had indoor plumbing, but Albin says it's expensive and we have to save up. Maybe next year I'll get to cry indoors. Maybe, dear, but I know you'll pull through regardless. Oh, wait here for just a second. I made some lutefisk this morning and would love to give you some. Elvira, I'm never going to maintain my girlish figure with you around. Your cooking's practically magic. Well, just take some. If you won't eat it, I'm sure your husband will. I insist. No. Alvira, save it for your children. They need it more than I do. Thank you for the concern. Alvira, you know what I mean. Things are going to turn around. I just know it. They have to. Adding to the stress of her existence was her increasingly strained relationship with Albin. As the bills piled up, Albin became bitter. He was not a pleasant person to be around. It may be a stretch to describe him as the kind of man who'd take candy from a baby, except according to stories, Albin Johnson was exactly that kind of man. Albin? What? I got a call from one of the boys at the store. He said he'd sent you home with some candy. Is that what he said? Oh, the children will be so thrilled. It's been so long since we've spoiled them. I ate it. Uh, uh, pardon me? I got hungry on the way home, and I ate it. Are you happy? No, Albin, I'm horrified. Why would you do this to your own children? Because maybe I needed a treat, all right? You're acting like a child, says the girl whining about candy. Uh, Albin Johnson, everyone who warned me about you was right. Go marry them. See if they provide for you. The only thing you provide me is misery. <sighs> Some people remember Albin as having a darkness to him. Others maintain that he was a family-minded man who'd just been dealt a bad hand. While the true nature of his personality may never be known, it was a simple fact that Albin and Alvira's marriage was in trouble. To make matters worse, Albin was unhappy with farming. He wanted more for himself and needed to make a change. Around 1932, Albin and Elvira moved their family about 50 miles south to the Twin Cities. It's unclear how Albin attempted to earn a living, 
but whatever he tried quickly failed. Less than a year into the new venture, 43-year-old Albin was forced to move his family back to Harris. Now he was broke, back home, and struggling to provide for a wife and seven children, all under 10 years old. A rumor had also spread that 29-year-old Elvira was pregnant with the couple's eighth child, although that's unconfirmed. If these rumblings were true, Albin must have been under greater pressure than many had realized. Albin tried to find a new job. He almost got a position working with his brother-in-law at a flour mill in Rush City, but for an unknown reason, he missed out on that opportunity. Luckily for him, another family member stepped in to help. Albin's father, Emil, was never known for his warmth or kindness, but he clearly saw how much his son was struggling. Emil was 71 and a widower who was tired of life on the farm. He wanted to move closer to the main town area of Harris, and he needed someone to take over. Albin, I think I'm getting too old to keep doing this. You should take the farm, move Elvira and your children in here, and run the place. Father, I... I don't know what to say. How about thank you? Thank you. Now, don't run it into the ground. This isn't a gift either. I'll expect rent at the beginning of every month. Yes, sir. Of course. Maybe some honest hard work will put some food on your kids' plates. I'll try my best, Father. Lord help you if you don't. Though Emil Johnson had a reputation for being difficult, he was still a God-fearing man, capable of mercy. He had just saved Albin and Elvira from potential homelessness. It was an act of kindness they wouldn't soon forget, especially because Emil followed it up with an act of stunning cruelty. Next, we'll cover the family betrayal that nearly broke Albin Johnson and the fire that ended it all. Now, back to the story. In 1933, Albin and Elvira Johnson and their seven children were in trouble. Money was tight, and though the family tried to make a living in the Twin Cities of Minnesota, nothing went right. The family was practically penniless, and the increasingly angry and withdrawn Albin was unable to find stable work. Albin's father, Emil, invited them to take over his farm in Harris, Minnesota. But there were conditions to his offer. Albin had to make sure the farm was profitable and also had to pay his father rent each month. Though the family found refuge in the small two-story farmhouse, Albin couldn't hold up his end of the bargain. By April 1933, Emil had grown tired of his son's failures. He was an old man who relied on his son's rent money and he felt it was time for some tough love. Albin, I'm sorry it's come to this, but I want you and Elvira out by the end of the month. Out of where? The farmhouse. If you can't pay the rent, then you don't get to live here. It's as simple as that, my boy. But we'll have no place to go, father. That's not my problem. If you can't handle a farm, then it's time we handed it over to someone who can. One of your brothers, perhaps. What are we supposed to do? Money is tight. I have seven children to feed. Well, maybe if you hadn't spent all your money on moonshine, we wouldn't be having this discussion. You're a monster. 
You stand up at church and talk about patience and mercy and then turn around and evict your own flesh and blood? The Lord has a limitless supply of mercy and patience. I do not. I want you out in 10 days or else. I won't ever forget this, Father. Not ever. Emil Johnson evicted his own son from the family farm. It was a cruel act, but Emil was known to be hard-headed and Albin was an unreliable tenant. His failures may not have been entirely his fault. Apparently, the Johnson soil was mediocre, and the few crops they managed to grow weren't up to par with what other local farms could supply. To make matters worse, all of this was occurring during the Great Depression. The Depression hit Minnesota farmers hard, and more than 1,400 farms, totaling around 258,000 acres, were foreclosed on. It was a difficult time to be a farmer, and Albin Johnson simply could not compete. Before he could focus on improving his farming skills, he had to find a new home for his family, and he set his eyes on a farmhouse in Rush City, Minnesota. The plan was to move there as soon as possible. But first, Albin needed to find the money to make the move possible. Hank, I really miss Canada. (laughs) All right, I think it's time we cut you off. No, I'm serious. Remember the good times we had? Albin, it was cold, miserable farm work. We can get that right here in Minnesota. Maybe I just miss being young and free, without father breathing down my neck. I heard about the uh, eviction. I'm sorry. He'll be sorry. You got a new place lined up? I got my eye on a place in Rush City, but the rent's 12 bucks a month. Is this the part where you ask for a loan? I've got nobody else to turn to, Hank. And it looks like Big Hank is footing the bill. On April 10th, 1933, Hank Johnson loaned his brother Albin $20, equal to nearly $400 today. Albin was seen in Rush City the following Monday. He was supposed to place a deposit on the new house he was renting for his family, but there's no record that he ever actually made that deposit. Instead, he bought eight sacks of tobacco. After returning to Harris, Albin had a tense meeting with his father to hand over the deed to the farm. Over the next day, Albin and Elvira packed up their belongings and loaded them onto a wagon. Soon, they would get a fresh start in Rush City. The beds are in the wagon, and I've just loaded up the last of the kitchen. We can set out tomorrow if we want. (sighs) I just can't believe we have to leave. We've moved before. We'll be all right. I don't know how long I can keep doing this. Elvira, I don't want another fight. No, I'm not trying to start a fight. I'm just... I'm so tired, Albin. I'm sorry. For for tricking you into marrying me, for being a failure. You're not a failure, Albin, but I just hope this next step is a better one for all of us. On the night of April 10th, 1933, the Johnson family had to make do with some unorthodox sleeping arrangements as their furniture was already moved out. Alvira slept with four-month-old James in the dining room while her 10-year-old son Harold slept in the kitchen. Her five other children slept on old mattresses in the living room. It's unknown where Albin was, but presumably he was settling into bed too. 
It was a cold, snowy night, and the Johnsons had a big move to prepare for. It was time for everyone to get a good night's rest. At 3.30 a.m. on Tuesday, April 11, 1933, a local farmer named Fred Trippin was driving down Highway 1 when he was distracted by the sight of flames in the distance. He immediately realized the Johnson farmhouse was on fire. He quickly drove to Rangnar Krantz's farm, a 100-acre piece of land that was closest to the Johnson's farm. After waking Ragnar and his wife, Trippin drove to the Johnson's farm to see if he could help. However, when he arrived, he knew it was too late. The fire had burned most of the farmhouse down. Only one corner of the house remained standing, and it collapsed a few minutes after Ragnar arrived. Ragnar, Krantz, and others showed up almost immediately thereafter, but there was nothing they could do to help. The fire was too intense, and if the family was still inside, it was almost certainly too late to help. Some onlookers swore that they could see a burning body within the blazing ruins of the Johnson house, but it's not clear if that's accurate or just a detail fabricated by a traumatized witness. Frank Hansen, chief of the Rush City Fire Department, drove through the April snow to arrive at the Johnson farm around 4 a.m., Hansen was a beloved public figure with a reputation for problem-solving, so it's likely there was a great feeling of relief when he finally showed up. Report! What the hell's going on here? Chief Hansen, I'm Ragnar Krantz. I live next door. Frank Trippin woke me and my wife up about an hour ago to tell us about- Krantz, thank you for the backstory, but tell me about the fire. I'm not sure when it started, but as you can see, it's nearly consumed the whole place. I think the wind may have helped it spread quicker. What about the family? I thought about seeing if I can get inside, but the blaze is just too big. I've got kids of my own to think about. I guess that makes me a coward. It makes you a sensible and thoughtful father. Now, my men are coming in to help. Can we use your farm as a home base? I need some place to work from for the next few hours. A place that's less on fire. Of course. Anything you need. Good man. Now. I need you to gather every able-bodied man and woman you can. We're going to search the area for survivors. Yes, sir. Over the next few hours, Hansen and his fire crew worked with the local sheriff's department to search the woods for any of the Johnsons. The fire raged on, slowly dying out. Eventually, around dawn, it was possible for searchers to enter what was left of the home. (coughs) Boy, this is a... Nightmare. I can barely breathe from all the ash. What caused this fire to begin with? I don't know. Maybe Alvin got so steamed up he burst into flame. Hush now. That's not funny. Watch out! Oh, thanks. That was a close one. Gosh, look. The kitchen floor caved into the basement. What's that? Look. Down in the basement. Oh, no. No. Those poor kids. Over the next few hours, investigators located several bodies, all charred beyond recognition. Elvira Johnson was found with her youngest son, four-month-old James. Five other children were found together in another room, and one final body was found in the basement. While they weren't fully certain, investigators suspected the final body had fallen through the kitchen floor as it burnt up. Authorities began the difficult process of calling the Johnsons' loved ones to tell them the terrible news. 
The fact that Alvira and her seven children were burned alive was horrific enough. But there was more to the story. After all, there were nine members of the Johnson family, and as investigators searched the farmhouse and the surrounding areas, the tragedy quickly turned into a mystery that would envelop the entire town of Harris. 29-year-old Alvira Johnson was found dead with her children, each of them burned alive. But her husband, Albin Johnson, was nowhere to be found, dead or alive. Thanks again for tuning in to Unsolved Murders. We'll be back on Tuesday with part two of the Johnson family murders. Join us next week as we delve into the hunt for Albin Johnson, the rumors that he set the fire that killed his wife and children, and the trial against him that had to be carried out in his absence. For more information on the Johnson family murders, amongst the many sources we used, we found the book Murder in Chisago County by Brian Johnson to be extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Well, not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Unsolved Murders for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Unsolved Murders on Spotify, just open the app and type Unsolved Murders in the search bar. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Yep, if we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Kerry Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Freddie Beckley, and Paul Mahler. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Amin Osman, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Tiana Camacho, Mike Capozzi, Lanisa Frederick, Joe Hernandez, and Harris Markson. It stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. 